right, well, we start with the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why of Jude. We got through three of those. We have two more to go, the uh, what and the why. And so we will turn to uh, verses 3 and 4 this morning, and we'll actually read from verses 1 through 4 this morning. Uh, let's, let's go to God in prayer before we enter into His Word. Our Father, you have promised that your word will not return to you void. I trust that your spirit will make your word uh, effectual to your purposes. And we ask that you would align our expectations of the appearance of the Holy Spirit's work to uh, what, what they really are in reality. And may we be warned that your word goes forth to create and to destroy and to save and to judge. I plead with you this morning that in this church, as we seek to serve you, and even in this service, your word would be uh, a saving word to the people here and ever forming us into new creations. I pray that your word, as it flows um, through me, the, the feeblest of conduits, I pray that it would not stop at our ears, but that each one of your servants and your slaves would go out to be contenders for the faith once for all, delivered to the faith, to the saints. God, uh, to your glory alone we pray. In the merits of Christ, amen. amen. Stand and we'll read Jude, verses 1 through 4 this morning. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Well, this week I got to speak to an old friend from seminary on the phone, and what do you do when you talk to old friends? You relate to each other on things that you share in common, right? So my friend, we went to seminary together, we talked about Sangre de Cristo Seminary, friends from seminary, our children are about the same age, um, we have a lot in common. So these are the things that we talked about, but suppose that we were in wartime, that we had war going on on our soil, and I knew that that there was a threat, an enemy threat, going to Roswell, New Mexico. It would almost be silly and weird if, if he and I just chatted about our kids. I, it, if I knew that there was a threat on its way, my, my responsibility would be to say, there's a threat and here's what it looks like, here's an identification of it. And to instruct him on perhaps how he might defend against it and heartily encourage him towards a, a resolute stance in this time. 
the Christian life is in many ways a wartime existence. And Jude recognizes that fact, and he sees threats that endanger these people that he loves. And though he would, would dearly love to, to correspond with them about things they have in common, specifically their common salvation in Jesus Christ, the need for warning at this time is more present and more pressing. So this morning I hope to remind us that we are as Christians indeed in wartime and that we have much for which we need to stand and contend. So my prayer here is that this morning you will leave being more convinced than when you arrived that the purity of God's church is worth fighting for and that you have a role to play in contending for it. Now we see these truths borne out for us here in the what and the why of this introduction. As I said last week, we saw who, when, and where, and now we see the reason for his writing and the contents of it. So we'll begin with the contents, the what, in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So that was his original intention, to write, and he was eager to write about their common salvation. That's what he wanted to do. When he sat down to write, perhaps, or when he first thought, I'll, I'll write these folks a letter, he's eager to, to write about their common salvation. And as I said, it, it's refreshing to relate to someone about something that you have in common. It, it can be encouraging, reinforcing, intimate even. You know, how excited are we when we go say, to a new job, and we discover there's a Christian there. That, that, that's the most exciting thing. We have something in common that supersedes all other possible common commonalities we could have. The gospel of salvation by grace, uh, th- there's little more that could be more, of more value on our lips than that topic. And that's what he wanted to write about. And that's a glorious story, the gospel of salvation by grace. That, that all mankind, though God was holy and, and put man in relationship with him, that he could be in relationship with him, all mankind fell when Adam rebelled against God in the garden. Mankind is a mess. Each one of us is a rebel at heart. We hate God and we set up perverse substitutes for God. As Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols. And God is perfect, beautiful in every way. He's perfectly loving, self-satisfied in triune love, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, rich in mercy, just without fail. He's holy, set apart from all creation, and yet willing to stoop and bend to relate to us. And how do we respond to such a God? We respond by spitting in His face. We say, your provision is not sufficient. Your word is not true. Your character is not trustworthy. Your creation is faulty. So we say, I will seek out my own path. I will do things my own way. I will decide what is right and what is wrong. Isn't that what happened in the garden? Did God really say? Now what's God's response to this? His response is wrath. P 
pure, holy, just, righteous wrath. We must do what is right, and he must do what is right. That, that's in his character. Exodus tells us that he will by no means clear the guilty. So all who are at odds with God, which is all of us in our natural state, will face the fires of eternal conscious torment in hell. And that's right. That's good. We shouldn't be embarrassed about that. But God is gracious in His kindness. His kindness, for nothing good in us, He supplied a way of salvation. When the fullness of time had come, though we were enemies with God, He sent forth His Son. And this Son, this pure spotless Lamb, the only one who could possibly satisfy God's wrath, God Himself. And Christ came as a man like us in all respects except for sin. Because only a man can pay for man's sins. Jesus came and he lived that flawless life of perfect righteousness. And he bore all the miseries of fallen humanity. He became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. And he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. God unites us by faith to him. And if we have faith in Christ, it's because God gave it to us as a gift. It is by His gracious gift that our sin-stained robes were wiped clean. By His gracious gift, that perfect righteousness won by Christ is credited to our miserable account. And we are declared righteous in God's sight. By His gracious gift, our sins were imputed to Christ. He took upon Himself our covenant curse and He gave us His blessed covenant righteousness as sons. And by the grace of God, we're united with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension, so that we've died to sin and live to righteousness. And by grace, we await, with that resolute faith, His return, and our resurrection and glorification. That, that is the salvation Jude is speaking about, that he eagerly wanted to write to them about. And actually, it's only a brief sampling of that salvation. It's a glorious salvation. And all of it is pure, unmerited, gracious favor. It is salvation by grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That was Jude's original desire. Before he was forced by the dangers posed to the beloved, that, that's what he wanted to write about. But we should pause for a moment and consider that even though Christians are in a wartime setting, even in wartime, there, there's ample opportunity to revel in our common salvation together. And perhaps we should take more opportunities. I, I don't know when the last time or if ever I've just written somebody about our salvation to just say, Look, look at what we have. Can we rejoice in this together? We have exponentially more modes of com communication than before. Letters, texts, emails, video calls, messaging. We can be around the world in an instant on our phone. What if we did just write a friend and, and wrote out salvation, though we know that they know it already just because we love it? That, that would be a worthy endeavor. If you want to write me about my salvation, 
I won't take it as, as an offense that you're trying to correct me or instruct me. I would rejoice, and I hope that you would feel the same way. So in light of that greatness, the glory of our common salvation, it really must be a matter of profound urgency that Jude switches gears here. He changes course. We read in, in the second half of 3, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Literally, he was compelled or was under such distress that it became a spiritual or a moral necessity that he write about this topic. He had to change his plan. And this was of such importance to Jude because if anything is as valuable as, as discussing our faith, it's defending our faith. So he writes to appeal to the church to contend for the faith. Notice it's not to, I think Vody Bakum said, it's not for just the Green Beret Christians. He says, to the beloved, to, to the church, contend for the faith. That word contend means to struggle or strenuously defend. Um, it comes from the word agonizomai, which you can hear our English word agonize comes from. One preacher said that the word used to describe, uh, it was described as like men in the, on the field of battle wrestling in the dirt for their lives. To contend. Fight even. And what is it that we're to contend so earnestly for? It is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This, the, the commission of the apostles of Jesus Christ was to testify about Jesus and to pass on their gospel from their generation to the next. Paul said in Galatians, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So there's one gospel, this apostolic message that's being passed down uh, the, the dictionary on the Greek word here, Thayer's Dictionary, says properly that it's to, to give into the hands of another. That's what this word delivered means. You can kind of see the picture of one runner passing the baton to the next runner. In the Roman Catholic Church, they have a concept of apostolic succession where Peter kind of whispered into the ear of the next pope and down on the line these secret <laughs> things so that each pope is the proper successor of Peter. That's apostolic succession. Well, Protestants and Reformed people believe in apostolic succession too. But it's an apostolic succession of the message of the apostles. Amen. From one hand to the next. The apostles were the foundation. We read in Ephesians 2, so they are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So it's one message, one apostolic message, 
passed down from generation to generation, once for all delivered to the saints. And that's what's so dangerous about these people today who are claiming to be new apostles, claiming to receive new revelation from Jesus. We'll talk more specifically about those folks in a moment. But these people are essentially snipping the apostolic chain of succession and instead claiming a direct new line of revelation through themselves. And we watch in horror as the faith once for all delivered to the saints looks less and less like it did originally. And this is why we need contenders. I think in Reformed circles we have such a robust understanding of our common salvation and we can get so excited about it, which is right, and, and really get into discussing the ins and outs of our salvation. But we can almost come to the point where we, we think that we are now the church triumphant already and not the church militant. And we think about the letters of the New Testament. How, how many of them were written to combat some issue, some threat to the church? I think somewhere in the neighborhood of all of them. So as much as we would like to right now sit and relax in the soothing hot tub of our of our salvation, that's not the nature of this epoch of redemptive history. I stumbled across a uh, one of those panel discussions and somebody was asking about the future of the church. I think it was maybe at the Reformation 500 thing, like... We've gone 500 years. Now what's the next 500 years? Sinclair Ferguson had a great quote. He said, We need to keep reminding ourselves of this, that all the way home we are under the theology of the cross. We will have an eternity for the theology of glory, but now is the time for the theology of the cross. The theology of glory is that sort of theology of of spiritual triumphalism, that we've somehow arrived, that God's will is our success and earthly powers and dominance are the proper position of the Christian. Well, the theology of the cross is, is that theology of take up your cross and follow Jesus, and glory in, in the Christian life is born out in suffering. Our epoch of redemptive history is a wartime epoch. We take up our cross. We put on the armor of God and we storm the gates of hell. So now the why in verse 4. The reason for his writing. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined, designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed. They're inside, you notice. He says they've crept in. They're inside the church. I listened to a book about, um, in Afghanistan, there was a combat, combat outpost named Keating, and in Keating, they were down in a hole, the worst possible place for a, an outpost. And 
and the Taliban one morning just descended upon them, like 300 Taliban, and uh, they were way outgunned, and uh, they they were getting slowly. They thought they were going to die, and at one point the, the enemy came inside the gates and came over the radio, enemy in the wire. That, that's the phrase they use for enemy inside our camp, in, the enemy in the wire. Now they ended up being saved by... Um, air power, essentially, by the United States Air Force. Um, a few died, but it was ended up being a, a victory, and, and Keating was then um, disbanded. Uh, but that, that phrase, enemy in the wire, sticks with me, that these people have crept inside our camp. Not only that, but they have done so unnoticed. Talked about this before, but the enemy, the devil, is not... He's not going to just come at you at a direct attack, perhaps like the Taliban did. He's going to come in through subterfuge and sabotage. They're inside the wire, and nobody knew they were there. He describes them here, who who long ago were destined for this condemnation. That's a difficult phrase, but I think it refers to the prophecy of the false teachers that would come into the church. There were prophecies of old that spoke of the arrivals of these types of people, and some of which we'll get into later in the book. Um, and we also know that Jesus and the apostles constantly predicted the coming of false teachers. So we knew these people were coming, but yet they came in unnoticed. And these wicked deceivers do have a role to play in God's plan of redemption. They're headed for condemnation, he says, but will rejoice one day at their judgment. And in the meantime, God means to sanctify us and to purify his church by the presence of the wolves among the sheep. He says they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Now, grace, we know what is grace. It's unmerited favor, getting things you don't deserve the kind of grace we talk about talked about earlier our salvation by grace it is a good when we do not deserve good but i think that we are we we think ourselves entitled to some good we think our, ourselves entitled to grace which kind of defeats the whole point of grace we think it's somehow merited favor we we believe we're owed everything good Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We'll sing it, but but do we feel the weight of it? Is it really amazing grace? Christ died for us while we were yet enemies. That is amazing grace. So we can imagine the grief of God when we presume upon the grace of God. He forgave me once, he'll do it again. I've had that attitude. It's it's an abominable attitude. We can hear the objectors, though. But, well, Paul taught us that we're free in Christ. Romans 14, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is unable to make him stand, is able to make him stand. So so we can hear them. Who are you to say what we can and cannot do? What liberties are we what liberties were afforded inside the bounds of grace? 
I think that's what these saboteurs are doing with grace. They're coming in, taking liberties they shouldn't with the grace of God, placing sensuality under the category of the liberty in Christ. And they're not only doing it, but they're teaching it. Not, not loudly from the podium, but quietly, persuasively, through conversation, through implication, through attractive, easygoing, happy-go-lucky lifestyle. And it slowly spreads through the church like gangrene. Now this is relevant for us. We are, I think, in a season of, sometimes we think unprecedented, unprecedented, but I don't think it is really unprecedented, but extreme moral and sexual revolution. And the people who are creeping into the church unnoticed have been doing so for so long, unchecked, that they're starting to get comfy that those former whispers in the secret back corners are making their way to center stage. And it's not just a a cultural problem or a big city problem or like a a left coast problem or a Washington, D.C. problem. It's a problem here at home. And grace turned into sensuality is, is the problem that Jude was facing. But there are many threats to the church. And there's a few just that I want to bring up that I think I see as being inside the wire for us today. Warnings that I think we need to be aware of. For sure, we know it's in our face all day long, but there are those sensuality issues in all manner of perversions creeping in. But another thing I've noticed is an unwillingness to define terms specifically or to be precise. And you may think that that's kind of nitpicky, but it's really very dangerous because that attitude leads to theological liberalism. In Christianity and liberalism, Machen said in the introduction, clear-cut definition of terms in religious matters, bold-facing of logical implications of religious views, is by many persons regarded as an impious proceeding. That was written in 1920s, but that, that sentiment echoes off the walls of these valleys. We need to be aware of it, and we need to contend against it. Another thing that I think is creeping into the church unaware is what is known as, by some, the New Apostolic Reformation. I think maybe we've talked about this before, but it's very serious, and people don't know about it, and it's spreading like wildfire. Churches like... Bethel Church or the folks at IHOP out in Kansas City represent this movement and and what they believe is that there are new modern apostles and prophets, prophets, new new conduits for new revelation from God so that someone like Bill Johnson is an apostle. He's received this direct commission from Jesus Christ. Another thing they believe in is this dominion theology that we talked about a bit at uh, session meeting. This this is really theo- the theology of glory on steroids. They have what they call the seven mountain mandate, where they're to take over the realms of education, religion, family, business, government, arts and media. They're to rule over these segments, and they're they they talk about having a military mindset. <laughs> they have a military mindset, but heading the wrong direction. So I, I would like to talk more about that, but but uh, 
for the sake of time, I won't, but I'd encourage you to check out um, Holly Pivek and her materials. Her website is spiritoferror.org, and I brought one of her books with me if you want to look at it. But it's worth checking into this new apostolic reformation because our churches in, in the valley are singing these songs from this movement, and it, it, it is moving in. I've seen it. Another thing to be aware of is the social justice movement. I haven't seen it here as much, though I'm sure it's here. Uh, it is in the culture, it's in the church, and it's well inside the conservative and even reformed camps, and it's moving in closer. And I think it's just something to be aware of. And that's not to say these movements are so severe as, as many of them are, are calling them heretics, where Jude's issue was more severe, but it can progress to that place, and we want to be people who are noticing these movements, not letting them come in unnoticed. So I'm sure there's many more things we could talk about, but those are just a few. And these things are worth fighting for, worth contending for. Machen said again in that introduction, he said, in the sphere of religion, as in other spheres, the things about which men are agreed are apt to be the things that are least worth holding. The really important things are the things about which men will fight. Now, how we fight matters. In the world, generally, it's, it's lobbing grenades at one another. One side raises their voice, the other side raises their voice. When one side takes an ad hominem cheap shot, so does the other side. Fighting dirty, pulling hair, scratching, biting, that's fighting to the world. And I fear we too often follow the world's example when we fight. But the Christian response to threats is to speak boldly and directly with gentleness. Paul said, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And he urges Titus, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> Therefore, rebuke them sharply. That's not a popular thing these days, rebuking sharply. Rebuke them sharply, that they may, may be sound in faith, and not devoting themselves to Jewish, Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So, so bold, direct, even rebuke is okay, but we also need gentleness. Paul urges Timothy in pastoral concern, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So bold and direct with gentleness. Now he says, denying their only master and Lord Jesus Christ. This is what they do. And there's two ways that I could think of. 
to deny the Master and Lord. The first is just to outright deny Him with our words. But we've already seen these people are sneaky. They're not standing up front just denying Jesus Christ. They're not Muslims standing in front of the Christian pulpit. The second way is to reject His mastery through disregard for His commands. This is surely what these people are doing. They affirm Him as Master in word, but not in deed. Just a striking contrast to Jude, who, who though he was a brother of Jesus and a friend of the apostles, said he was a slave of Jesus Christ. This gives us a, a sense here of what's at stake. To affirm Christ's lordship in word, but not in heart or in deed, is to deny his lordship and thus to deny Christ. So th- this is a salvific matter. And it's worth taking up arms about. So to conclude here, I just want to urge us that the purity of God's church is worth fighting for. It's worth contending for. And that that it's not just for those Green Beret Christians or, or elders or pastors, but each one of us in our own way can contend for the faith. We can be content. We can contend without being contentious, but we must contend. Machen, one last time. He's got so many good quotes on this topic. He said, "God has always saved the church, not by theological pacifists, but by sturdy contenders for the truth." So let me exhort you from Ephesians, and I'll close. Finally, be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand Therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The only offensive tool in that whole setup is the word of God, by the Spirit. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. Amen. Uh, I think I left my bulletin, but I think we're singing a song next.